Fairest Lord Jesus, beautiful Savior, friends, thank you so much for that. Good morning, folks, and welcome to our 11 o'clock service on this, the second Sunday of the season of Lent. Welcome to those of you in the room, many more joining us online, and these young families coming in. It's lovely. And uh, it's good to be together in God's house. Welcome to those of you uh, who are joining us online. We're grateful that you are with us as well today. Uh, a lot of you are visiting with us. We're honored that you've come. We hope we'll leave some contact information so we could perhaps interact with you this week, see how we might support you, uh, begin the process of befriending one another. My name's James Howell, and I'm up front this morning with my friend and colleague, Reverend Jessica Dason. Good morning. It is good to be here with you. I want to make sure you take time to look in your bulletin on this little flap. It has lots of information about different ways to get involved. You can also check out our website, but we hope that during this season of Lent, you'll take some time to perhaps add to your normal routine, whether that's volunteering in our children's ministry or serving with our missions department or plugging into a Bible study or small group. We hope that you will take advantage of that. It is good to be together. We are so glad that you are here. So let us worship God together.
let us continue to join our voices together through the Apostles' Creed as found in your bulletin. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Friends, it is our great privilege at the service to celebrate the sacrament of holy baptism. Uh, let's see, Claire and Brooks DuBose bring their daughter, Harriet Pierce, and Rebecca and Carter Sewell bring their daughter, Hyatt Francis. Brothers and sisters in Christ, through the sacrament of baptism, we are initiated into Christ's holy church. We are incorporated into God's mighty acts of salvation and given new birth through water and the spirit. All this is God's gift offered to us without price. Friends, on behalf of the whole church, I ask you, do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to renounce evil and repent of your sin? If so, say we do. Do you confess Christ as your savior, put your trust in his grace and promise to serve him as your Lord? If so, say we do. And will you nurture these children in Christ's holy church that by your teaching and example, they may be guided to accept God's gift of grace for themselves, profess their faith openly and lead a Christian life. If so, say we will. And will you, members of Myers Park United Methodist Church, include these families now before you in your care? Will you proclaim the good news and live according to the example of Christ? Will you surround these families with a community of love and forgiveness that they may grow in their service to others? And will you pray for them that they may be true disciples who walk in the way that leads to life? If so, say we will. Friends, let us pray. Eternal Father, when nothing existed but chaos, you swept across the waters and brought forth light. In the days of Noah, you saved those on the ark through water. When you saw your people as captives in Egypt, you delivered them through the sea, their children you brought into the promised land through the Jordan. 
In the fullness of time, you sent your son Jesus. He was baptized by John and anointed by your spirit. And he calls on his disciples to share in the baptism of his death and resurrection. Pour out your Holy Spirit now to bless this gift of water in those who receive it, to wash away their sin and clothe them in righteousness throughout their lives, that dying and being raised with Christ, they may share in your final victory. All praise to eternal Father through your Son, Jesus Christ, who with you in the Holy Spirit lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Harriet Pierce DuBose, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hyatt Francis Sewell, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Therefore, let your light so shine before others that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. Children of God, as you grow in age, may you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We rejoice to welcome you to the family of God. Friends, as we just witness the abundance of God's grace, it is with confidence that we can come before God to confess our sins, knowing that God is quick to forgive. So please join me in the prayer of confession as found in your bulletin. Our minds and hearts are consumed by busyness and brokenness. Pride and rancor shout loudly in our lives. We want to see as you see, to see ourselves as vessels of your love, to see and be kind to others. We want to hear as you hear, listening to the least of these, those wounded, debated, blamed, and left out. Free us from all bondage, free enough to be reconciled to you and with others. 
consume our hearts and minds by your grace. Hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love for us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. Amen. Please stand as you're able for the reading of the gospel. The gospel reading is Mark chapter 8, beginning in the 31st verse. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. And he called to him the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Scott, thank you for this reading. This is uh, maybe the most pivotal passage uh, moment in the story of Jesus' life. Uh, he's taken the disciples to the far north, to Caesarea Philippi. Um, it was uh, for centuries uh, a place dedicated to the uh, nature god Pan, nature deities, Pan, the god of the forest. And, wilderness and so on. And also, there was a cave, a huge cave there that we still go and visit now, a dark cave. It was regarded as the uh, entrance to the underworld there. And then by the time of Jesus, Caesarea Philippi was uh, adorned with a warren of temples that were, de that were uh, dedicated to the Roman emperor. So here you had you know, the gods of nature, the gods of political power, and then, then the fear of death, all in this one place. And Jesus comes there, and he's explaining to the disciples that he is, in fact, the one, but then he explains what that entails, that he's actually the one. As it says, he began to teach them that he must suffer and be rejected and be killed. And uh, what he says next is interesting. You, you might hope that he would say to the disciples, so bye, see ya, go find a safe place because there's going to be dangerous where I'm going. No, instead, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And that doesn't mean, you know, bear your burdens nobly. Jesus says, take up your cross. He just doesn't say, take up your pillow and take a nap. Take up your pillow and be comfortable. Now, Jesus says, take up your cross. And in the Roman world, anyone would have heard that as he's talking about walking with him on the green mile. He's talking about going with him to death 
row. Friends, I wish I had a different sermon for you today. I wish Jesus had said, if you follow me, you'll be happy and healthy and, and wise, and it will just be so much fun. But instead, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Death row, what could that be like? Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote about being on death row. He was a dissident in Russia years ago. Here's what he wrote about the gulag. From the moment you enter the gulag, you put your cozy past firmly behind you. At the threshold, you must say to yourself, my life is over. I shall never return to my old life. I shall never return to freedom. I no longer have any property. Only my spirit remains precious to me. I mean, Jesus' logic is so illogical. If, if you want to find yourself, you lose yourself. If you want to save your life, you lose your life. It's this origami that Jesus does with, with your mind and with your soul. Christianity, I wish I could tell you it was something different. Christianity is not a cozy this afternoon or tomorrow. Christianity is your, your old two-bit life is, is over now. You, you're free, but you have a different kind of freedom. Your property is no longer yours. It's all God's. There was a moment that I recall in seminary, it was kind of a light bulb moment where uh, the professor was talking and he asked the question, why did Jesus die? And about 12 people raised their hands and said, for our sins. And then he turned the question though to not why did Jesus die, but why did they kill him? And for our sins doesn't make any sense, right? Why did they kill Jesus? And it's pretty clear from the gospel is that Jesus had this nasty habit of crossing boundaries, the very good, law-abiding, middle-of-the-road, status quo people of those days, they had erected boundaries around themselves. They were good. They followed the law. They did the right thing. They were upright people. They were rising up in society. They were good. And outside those boundaries, though, there were questionable people, people who had misbehaved, people who weren't all that holy, people who were whatever they were, they were outside the boundary. And Jesus had no patience with this. Jesus had no patience. Jesus only had harsh words for the people who thought they were in a position to pass judgment on other people. Jesus kept crossing those boundaries, and they just couldn't have that, and they killed him for it. You see, Jesus is not impressed by your niceness. Y'all look very nice today. I haven't had a chance to inquire if you've been nice or naughty this week. Most of you could probably check in. Yeah, I've been nice this week. Jesus is not impressed with your niceness. Jesus wants us to be people who follow him, and we too cross boundaries to the people that the world has ostracized or left out. Uh, notice what Jesus uh, did not say in this passage. I thought about this. I just read a, a very cool novel called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Uh, it's a novel about uh, gaming, you know, gamers, and, but you don't have to know anything about gaming, as I do not know anything about gaming, to love this novel. And there's a great moment in it where there's a character named Marx, and he asks the following question, what is a game? He said, it's tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. The game is only over if you stop playing. There's always one more life. Even the most brutal death isn't final. You could have taken poison, fallen into a vat of acid, been shot a hundred times. Still, if you click restart, you can begin all over again. Next time you might get it right. Next time you might even win. That's what a game is. I wondered, thinking about that this week, if this might be part of why we have so many mass shootings. 
is that people grow up and they play games where you can just shoot up a bunch of people and you can even get shot up yourself, but then you just hit restart and you play the game again. But of course, in real life, there's not a restart button. There wasn't a restart button for Jesus. His brutal death was the end. It was the end. It was final. Jesus did this for us. Jesus did this out of so much love for us. The question that I've always had is, how does that work? Like we, how, does, how does somebody dying 2,000 years ago on the other side of the globe, how does that save us? Now, uh, when I was in seminary, when Taylor and Jessica were in seminary, uh, you come to a moment in church history class where they teach you theories of the atonement, right, Taylor? She's nodding. It's good. It, it's the equivalent, by the way, of in a black church, somebody will holler amen, but yeah, I'll take a nod here. It's, it's like enough. So you learn theories of the atonement. So theologians over time try to make sense of Jesus died. Say, how does that actually work? So the first person you study is this guy named Anselm in the 12th century. And the way he puts it all together, he's taking bits and pieces from the Bible, and he says, okay, what the story is, you, you have sinned, and God is very annoyed with you about this. In fact, God is raging angry with you about this. And the only way to placate God's anger, to get God to calm down and not just destroy you because you've been such a terrible sinner, is that God sends his son to die in your place. This is a difficult theory to sustain, but to cast God is primarily somebody who's just really annoyed and is going to get even and does so by a cruel death to his own beloved son. That doesn't work real well, God, God of wrath. About parenthetically, while I'm on wrath, I remember this this week uh, when I was in seminary, I worked one summer at a church, and the uh, senior pastor said, uh, I'll give you one crack at the pulpit. I said, oh, thank you very much. So I worked very, very hard on my sermon. I know what my first sentence was. My first sentence was, the wrath of God is something we don't like to talk about. And this proved to be true for the rest of the sermon. People, it was like, I'm dying. It's not going well at all. They did not wish to talk about the wrath of God. Went downhill from there. And when church was over, the senior pastor said, you had your one chance. <laughs> but the wrath of, we get confused, right? We think God's angry, God loves. What is it? And to me, the best way to think about the wrath of God is God is all mercy. God is all love. But what happens is when we're resistant to God's love, to God's grace, to God's mercy, we kind of get sideways with it, right? Or we, or we crash into it or we collide with it. And we, we really want to control things ourselves. And then God's mercy feels it, 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 it's uneasy for us, right? Or uh, I met uh, over... Uh, the pandemic, a Pentecostal theologian named Chris Green that I admire a lot, he talks about this passage where uh, Jesus explains that he's got to go to Jerusalem and suffer and be rejected and be killed, and Peter jumps in and says, no, 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 Lord, no, no. And Jesus says to him, Jesus turns away from him and says, get behind me. What Chris Green says about that is so interesting. That feels like the wrath of God, right? Maybe you felt at some point like God has turned away from me. But actually, when Jesus turned away from Peter, what he was doing is he was helping Peter be where he was supposed to be in the first place. 
Jesus doesn't ask us to be ahead of him or even behind him. Jesus says, follow me. So by turning away, he actually is helping Peter to find his place. He's not putting Peter in his place. He's helping Peter to find his place. I, I love that. I love that idea uh, so much. So uh, Anselm does his anger of God thing, and then Abelard comes along, and Abelard says, it's not that God's angry, it's, the, it's God's love. God sends Jesus, and when Jesus dies, we, we see in that the immensity, the overflow of God's love, and we're so moved by that. And all kinds of other theories of the atonement. Um, Robert Jensen, great theologian, died a couple of years ago. What he says, there, there's no theory to explain it. There's only the biblical story. Like, there's the story that's in the Bible, and it's that story that saves us. So my question then is, how do we find ourselves in the story? What in that story actually speaks to us? So, so here are a few things. One is that story begins... That's Caesarea Philippi. Jesus knows that the powers that be are out to get him and that they, they're already wanting to kill him. And uh, Jesus has the option to say, I'm going to flee to Asia Minor. I'm going to try to go to Africa. I'm going to find a comfortable place somewhere where those guys don't know me and can't find me. But instead, Jesus walks right into the teeth of danger because he knows that there are people, they need him. They know that they're lost without him. That would actually be all the people. There are people who are on the other side of those boundaries who are counting on him, and so he becomes very courageous. We don't talk enough about courage in the life of faith. We think that faith is kind of, oh, being comforted and being at peace, but part of faith is having some courage. Like, it's hard to live for God in a world like this. It requires some Courage. Jesus has courage. What happens to Jesus then is that when he gets to Jerusalem, they are so ugly to him. There is, there is, it's extreme ugliness that is directed at Jesus. And what's striking is the way he responds to all that ugliness. He's quiet and he never retaliates. Friends, we live in a culture where retaliation is kind of a requirement, right? If somebody wrongs you, like, you got to get them back. It may only be in your mind. You may only seethe in your mind toward this other person who's so wrong or whatever. Jesus never retaliates. He oddly always loves even those that are being ugly to him. Jesus, he, uh, interesting part of the story, up, up to Caesarea Philippi, Jesus, like, he's a man on a mission. He's an actor on the stage of history. He's uh, working miracles. He's drawing crowds. But from this point on, he doesn't really do any miracles. Increasingly, he's acted upon. It uses the phrase that he was handed over. He was handed over. When you're in charge, you aren't handed over. I remember years ago, a church member of mine, he was exactly my age and he had three children, exactly the age of my three children. I'll never forget the day that he phoned me and he said, James, they've handed me over to hospice. They've handed me over. No longer an actor. He's dependent on other people from that point forward. I thought of a woman in this light this week. Um, former church member, she had lived a just glorious life and had traveled the world and done so many great things, but then in her old age, she'd been reduced to immobility. She was in a bed all the time in the nursing homes. I went by to visit her, and uh, I asked her, I said, uh, you know, what, what's, what's, it, what's it like 
And she kind of amazed me. She said, this is great. And I said, okay, you're confined to the bed. You can't. She said, this is great. She said, you know why it's great? She said, when I was a little girl, I dreamed that one day I would grow up to be a queen and people would come and wait on me hand and foot and I wouldn't have to lift a finger and everything would just be done for me. And here I am. I said, oh, queen, uh, yes, thank you. It, it was so lovely. You know, there's a story of, from Mr. Rogers, right? Mr. Rogers, um, there's a little boy named Jeff who was a paraplegic, and uh, he'd, never, um, he'd never gotten up out of a wheelchair and had suffered much in his life, and his mother thought he was really depressed, and the only thing that seemed to brighten his mood was when Mr. Rogers would come on the TV. So she applied for some grant from a foundation, and Mr. Rogers came to visit Jeff. And they visited for a while, and then uh, there's a reporter watching this. And when it was time to go, Mr. Rogers took the hand of the child, and the reporter assumed that he's going to pray for this boy, Jeff. But instead, Mr. Rogers asked Jeff to pray for him, Mr. Rogers. As they walked away, the reporter said to Mr. Rogers, like, that was really cool, the way you asked that boy to pray for you. That was amazing. And Mr. Rogers, typically naive, didn't understand the question and just said, no, I, I really wanted, I need him to pray for me. I figure anyone who's been through as much as he's been through must be very close to God. Jesus' courage, Jesus going through things. Jesus entered our darkest place in that crucifixion. There's an Auschwitz exhibit downtown, a photo exhibit that you should go to. It's sobering, it's beautiful, it uh, is grievous, it's so many things, beautiful exhibition. Elie Wiesel tells about being at Auschwitz and on the horrible night when the Nazis, um, with great mockery, hung a child. And they saw the child dangling, the crowd was watching, and Wiesel heard someone behind him ask, where is God? Where is God? And Wiesel heard a voice in his head saying, there, there is God. God's there hanging on the gallows. We look at the cross, and at the cross, Jesus said, where is God? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when we look at that, we say, that that is God. God did not remain remote in heaven. God came down to be one with us even in our darkest hour, even in our death itself. So great was his love. You know, what's more amazing from the cross, I don't know why this has blown my mind for the past two years, and I wish it had blown my mind 45 years ago. I'd have been better off. Jesus on the cross, he looks down. I mean, he, yeah, he sees his mother and a disciple, but his other friends have fled for the exit, scared. But who he sees at the foot of the cross are the soldiers that have just driven nails through his hands and feet. They have been ridiculing him, making fun of him, spitting at him. They are now down there gambling over his clothing. They don't know who he is. They are not sorry. They're not praying. They're not repenting. They're just, they're just picking up their paycheck, being Roman soldiers, just you know, like to kill him something. It's part of their job that day. And Jesus looks down, and it still just moves me so much. He forgives them. They're not sorry. They don't promise not to kill somebody again. Jesus just forgives. 
And that's dangerous when somebody forgives like that. Like there are no strings attached. Jesus' mercy just really is for everybody. What is crucified on the cross is our thinking that we, we can earn our place with that. We can be good enough for that. God's light shines on us because we, whatever. But no, it's just all God's mercy. So beautiful. We can say saved, we're saved, we're saved from what? What are we saved from? I know when I was a little boy, I didn't go to church much, but when I did, I went with my grandparents, and they had this preacher in this old Baptist church. He, he, I, I always love it when I can say, that pastor was on fire. This guy wasn't on fire. It was like he was himself a flamethrower, like just fire coming at us all the time. Like, you sinned and you're going to burn for, the, I was scared to death by him. I thought, oh, I'll put bubblegum under a, the desk. I'm sorry, God, don't, I'm sorry. This kind of stuff. Anyway, does God save us from the eternal torments? Does God save us from a vapid, pointless life? Does God save us from being alone? What does God save us for? God saves us for a, a life of purpose. God saves us for being part of something bigger than ourselves. God saves us for, you know, a great many beautiful things, the beauty of a holy life, and who knows. Uh, here, here's the last thing, and I'll be done. Uh, after I finished reading Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, uh, I decided to read a book with a similar title by Maggie O'Farrell called I Am, I Am, I Am. Like, I got the, th like, the threesomes going. It's a great book. The subtitle is 17 Brushes with Death. I saw the subtitle and I thought, how could she have had 17 brushes with death? After you read her book, you think, I have had 49 brushes with death. It's just all the time something, and you don't need to tell us in Charlotte because you drove here. Like, you know, it's like a brush with death all the time. So she talks about brushes with death, and then, you know, what's it like? You survived. You made it. And in her case, her daughter had a brush with death, and made it, how, how, do we, how do we process that? I think there are two ways to think about it. One's okay, the other's really good. The okay one is this. Wallace Stevens, the great poet and novelist, wrote these words, death is the mother of beauty. Only the perishable can be beautiful, which is why we are unmoved by artificial flowers. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Rabbi Steve Leader responds to this by saying, the beauty of flowers is that they fade. The same for our lives. What meaning would a deathless life have? Will we not lack ambition? Will we not lose all purpose? The beauty is that our lives are not infinite. We can only accomplish so much, so we must make the most of our time here on earth. I mean, I like that idea. You have brushes with death. You're only here for so long. It's probably good that life is not infinite, so we make the most of our time. That's a fine message. But I see in Jesus something that's way, way better. And if you'll allow me, I want to share some uh, personal stuff that I think you probably share with me in. My first uh, wrestling with the death of somebody I loved so much was the death of my grandfather. I've talked to you before about my grandfather. We called him Papa Howell, marvelous man. He died way too young and for me. 
Anyway, when he died, it was my first time being around this. So I was around family, the house, and then people talking at the funeral home, and then people talking in the church, and then people talking in the cemetery. And I kept hearing people say, oh, he's with God. Oh, he's in a better place. Oh, he's in heaven. And I have to be honest with you, this was no consolation to me. Because all I could think is, like, I want him here. I need him here with me. I need him here with me. And then this has recurred for me more recently. I've had two, all deaths are terrible, two that are especially terrible for me. One is uh, in October, my father-in-law, Tom Stockton, he used to be the senior pastor here. You're going to see him. There's an old portrait of, of him in the hallway. Uh, he died. And, you know, he was 93. And a lot of people said to me, wow, how lucky were you to have him till he was 93? That's like a really long time. How blessed were you to have him up until age 93? And I get that. And I'm so grateful that he didn't die at 71, that he made it to 93. But, and I know he's with God. I know that. But at the same time, I miss him so much every day and I wish you were here I wish on July 26th we could celebrate his 94th birthday and some more after that I wish he were here and then more recently our former music director uh, Jimmy Jones died and I just struggled to deal with that um, you know, I went and spoke at his funeral uh, down east, and a lot of other people talked, and they shared funny stories and happy memories, and everybody said, oh, he's with God, oh, he's in heaven. I love that I, too, have happy memories with Jesus. I'm glad with Jimmy. I'm glad that he's in heaven, but I don't know. I just wish he were here. I said that at the funeral. I can't really think of the world very well without him in it. And I don't think this is a faithless way of thinking. It's not like you're a person of faith. You're like, oh, I'm so glad they're gone. They're in heaven. Done. I think God invites us because God, God's the one that made us love that much. God's the one that created us with that great gift of love that we love so much that we, we, can't, we can't even picture the person being gone, and we really just want them here. And I think it's okay. At the same time, when Jesus told Peter that I must go to Jerusalem and suffer and be rejected and be killed, he did add and rise again on the third day. That's not restart to a game. Jesus wasn't playing a game that he could start over and play it again and try to get it right, try to win eventually. It, his death was his death, and what was beyond that was this opening up of a totally transformed life of eternity, and Jesus died and came and loved for that. You know, there's this thing that uh, I meant to look it up so I could quote it to you exactly, and I didn't get it done. I apologize. Marilyn Robinson, great writer. My favorite of her novels is called Housekeeping. A lot of people haven't heard of it. It's a beautiful book. And on the very last page, 
Uh, she reflects over this, and uh, she says things like, every treasured memory, every beautiful thought that we've ever had, they turn over and they turn over and they turn over waiting for those memories and those thoughts to take on flesh. And she speaks of, she calls them the wanderers, the, the perished, the people of those memories and thoughts, and we feel keenly their absence so much that one day those memories and thoughts will take on flesh and the wanderers will walk through the door. <laughs> She says they will stroke our hair, and then they will apologize for keeping us waiting so long. Or maybe it's what we sang early in the service, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home. What joy shall fill my heart. God is love, God is not angry. Jesus came to love us, to save us. I'm so grateful. I know you are as well. Thanks be to God. Let us continue in prayer. Heavenly God, here I am. Here you are and here we can be together. No matter our exhaustion, our grief, our stress, our shame, our brokenness, you have not left our side. You remain with us as we wander through our lives, and you love us wholly. Guide our thoughts, imaginations, and actions to encounter you in our lives and in our worship. 
Help us to experience you today and all days. Lord, in your mercy. Lord, the, this pain in this world, we feel in our bodies. The exhaustion of sleepless nights, the tightness of our chests, and the prayers that anxiety will one day untether its grip. The fog of depression, casting a veil over the things in our life that bring us joy, hiding the things that inspire us, making us believe that the world is much dimmer than we remember it to be. Lord, may your peace be known. May we feel your healing presence, not only in our souls, but in our bodies too. Lord, in your mercy. Lord, this week we are reminded that all children are beloved children of God. And we come to you with hope that we can live in a world that accepts all people as divinely known and loved by you. We lament that we still live in a violent place with so much hatred. Here are prayers of sorrow, our prayers of repentance. Let your spirit guide us toward a safer, more loving world for all of God's beloved. A world where we will know less grief, but Lord, we know that there is sadness in this world. So we come honestly before you and we lift our grief and the grief of others to you. Lord, we especially lift up and remember the families of Dottie Tobias, Cecilia Boyer, and the Reverend Sidnor Thompson III. Lord, in your mercy. Lord, help us to hold on to hope. Help us to be healers. Help us to be proclaimers. Embolden us to let the seeds of our kindness make changes in this world. Empower us to speak courageously when we have opportunity to make changes in the world. Lord, help us to be the church. Help us to say yes to you whenever your spirit stirs in us. Help us to remember that we are doing this work together as your church. And now let us pray the prayer that your son taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those that trespass against us. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. As the ushers come forward, I want to extend our gratitude and thanks for the ways in which you have continued to be a generous church. You allow this to be a place where we worship God, where we grow in our faith, where we encounter each other, and we continue to change the world. Thank you.
we offer these gifts to you. May they be a source of hope for the world, and may we continue to live out our calling as your church. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each one of us, both now and forevermore.